Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Just Podcast. Today, we are going to be mixing it up a little bit and introducing you to another podcast, one that we've been following for quite some time. We're a big fan of Black History for White People. Um, today, on today's episode, um, the crew over at Black History for White People are going to be tackling um, the Juneteenth holiday, doing a deep dive on the significance of the holiday, how it came into being, the history, uh, and the ramifications for present day. So there's a lot, a lot going on in this interview, and we're really excited to be able to put this content in front of you. I think there's a lot that you can learn from it and apply to your context, wherever, whatever that may be. So uh, buckle in, get ready to learn, get ready to listen, and be challenged, uh, and we, uh, we hope you enjoy. Thanks. Okay, Garen, we're going to be talking about Juneteenth. So set up for us the picture of what's going on in the country and the time frame. Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of the word Juneteenth, but may not know exactly what that means in regards to history and the events that took place. So help mm-hmm. us out. Yep. Juneteenth is a holiday on June 19th, celebrating the end of slavery in America. And it has roots in a particular story within Texas, within Galveston, Texas. But it's kind of grown over time and become just a general nationwide holiday celebrating the end of enslavement in America. So why June 19th in particular? That's the commemoration of the day that the word of freedom at the end of the Civil War came to Galveston, Texas through General Granger bringing General Order Number 3. We're going to get into that in a minute. It was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed. So That's Abraham Lincoln... Yeah, Abraham Lincoln, 1863, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And then two full years later is when the word of freedom actually came to Galveston and kind of reached the extent of the American landscape. So it was kind of the, marked the end of enslavement because that's kind of like the further reaches of the word of freedom kind of reaching out to Texas, kind of at the far end. But really, in one sense, slavery did not end until the signing of the 13th Amendment, which came a little bit after. But we celebrate June 19th because it's kind of a representative day that has just been chosen to celebrate the emancipation. And we do that for all holidays. For 4th of July, we pick the day that the Declaration of Independence was signed, even though... You could just as easily have chosen the day that a definitive battle in the Revolutionary War happened or when America won the Revolutionary War. But you kind of, to commemorate something, you just kind of have to pick a day. And June 19th is the day that in Texas was celebrated for a whole century. And then over time, it became adopted more broadly as the day to celebrate the emancipation. So to really get into the history and kind of tell the story, we're going to tell the story of Texas and what happened with freedom coming to Texas. But just realize this is just kind of a sample of what was happening in the country at the time. And going deep into what was happening in one place can kind of give us a snapshot of what was happening everywhere. The Harvard historian Annette Gordon-Reed said, It is really a very Texas move to say that something that happened in our state was of enough consequence that it should be celebrated nationwide. So, I mean, just being from Texas, I think it's a very Texas thing. But Texas formally invites the rest of the world into celebrating. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, no offense, we live in Texas. We're in Texas. Yeah, we're in in Denton in Texas. So let's go into Texas history. Uh, First of all, 
people have the wrong conception of Texas. People who don't live in Texas. When you hear about Texas, most people, what's conjured in their minds is cowboys and ranchers. And that's kind of been the case throughout Texas's history. But that's actually a minority of what Texas culture is all throughout the past. That's a picture of West Texas. But really most of the population of Texas all along has been in East Texas where it's not deserts, there's not cowboys and ranchers. And the defining cultural figure in East Texas and the defining figure over Texas politics throughout Texas history was the planter, was the plantation owner. The story of Texas politics is the story of plantation owners wielding their power to their own advantage. And so we're going to tell that story. Stephen F. Austin and the Mexican government sought to draw white people to Texas, but there was a strong anti-slavery sentiment among the Mexicans. So then Austin, who, as you know, the, the Texas capital is named after him, he lobbied intensely to get the Mexican legislature to protect slavery so that he could recruit white people, white plantation owners, with their slaves to Texas. But the Mexican government kept whittling away at slavery until the Texans had had enough of it and they rebelled. So that's, most people know Texas for a while was an independent nation. If you're in Texas, they love to talk about how they were an independent nation. Mm, yeah. But what most people don't realize is the entire reason for that independence was they became independent because they wanted to protect slavery. They wanted to create laws that thoroughly protected slavery, Mexico, wouldn't have it because there was anti-slavery sentiments. And so the Texans broke away because they wanted to recruit more slavers to Texas. So Texas rebelled, became its own republic in 1836, which secured the right for the slavers. White settlers poured into the new republic, and Texas became a bit of an international pariah. It was seen internationally as a slaveholder's republic and had some, some bad PR. In Texas schools, there's this idea of Texas broke away because of states' rights. But you have to ask, I mean, all through history, slavery has always been defended with this appeal to state rights because people don't actually want to say they're defending slavery, so they just say they're defending states' rights. But really, it was the state's right to have slavery. That's what was actually at the root right. of what was being defended in Texas. So contention over slavery had been the central dynamic in Texas politics from the moment Stephen F. Austin had dreamed of bringing white colonists into the land. The Texas Constitution, whenever it broke away and became independent, it shows this. Section 6 of the Constitution says, quote, All free white persons who shall immigrate to this republic and who shall, after a residence of six months, make oath before some competent authority that he intends to reside permanently in the same and shall swear to support this constitution and that he will bear true allegiance to the Republic of Texas shall be entitled to all the privileges of citizenship. In the state constitution, they're explicitly limiting citizenship to the free white citizens. And then three sections later in section nine, they say, Congress shall pass no laws to prohibit immigrants from the United States of America from bringing their slaves into the Republic with them and holding them by the same tenure by which such slaves were held in the United States. Nor shall Congress have power to emancipate slaves, nor shall any slaveholder be allowed to emancipate his or her own slaves, slave or slaves, without the consent of Congress, unless he or she shall send his or her slave or slaves without the limits of the republic. 
no free person of African descent, either in whole or in part, shall be permitted to reside permanently in the Republic without consent of Congress. In other words, in Texas, there was no category of free black people. To be black categorically meant to be a slave. It, they, you literally needed explicit permission from Congress even to free a black person from slavery. And they had to then leave Texas or else have explicit permission from the, the Congress to stay. So, and that was actually more strict than the laws throughout the rest of the South. So slavery was central to the identity of Texas. Slavery was cent- central to the culture of Texas. Annette Gordon-Reed, again, Harvard historian, said, there's no way to get around the fact that whatever legitimate federalism-based issues were at play, slavery was a central reason Anglo-Texans wanted out of Mexico. So then Texas joined the U.S. Again, they had a bad PR because they were just seen internationally as a, a slave republic. And so they joined the U.S. in 1845. Sixteen years later, they joined the Confederacy in order to protect the very slavery that they had already been chasing all along. So that was in 1861, but the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. And so zooming out a little bit, we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, but the Civil War was on the South side. Like As far as the South was concerned, it was entirely fought over slavery, to protect slavery. The South saw that the North was whittling away at the laws that were protecting slavery, and so they rebelled in order to preserve it. But as far as the North was concerned, the North was not motivated by this noble attempt to end slavery. The North was entirely motivated by a desire to keep the Union together. Right. And so W.B. Du Bois, in his history of this era, commented that not one in ten of the northern soldiers would have been willing to fight if it had really been a war to end slavery. Because in the North, they were also white supremacists, almost universally. Even the abolitionists in the North were openly white supremacists for the most part. They just thought that slavery was wrong. Right. So the North was not motivated by good intentions. And and that's why the Emancipation Proclamation didn't happen until two years into the Civil War. It wasn't that Lincoln freed all the slaves and then fought a war to enforce that. The war was already happening. And then partway through, halfway through the Civil War, the North was, was getting a bunch of refugees coming up from the South, black people who were running away from slavery, And they started to realize, hey, if instead of returning them, as they had been doing, if we actually just kind of recruit them into our army, then we could get a strategic edge over the South, and that could actually turn the tide of the war. And so then there was this pragmatic move on the part of Lincoln to emancipate the slaves as a way to try to recruit enslaved people to the cause of the North, both to gain soldiers and to deprive the South of the laborers who were keeping their economy afloat. There's a a mixed bag where in the Civil War, again, it was fought over slavery on the part of the South, which they deny, and that denial needs to be firmly kind of rebuked, that no, the South was fighting the Civil War not to protect states' rights, but protect and preserve slavery. But then also to just point out that even the North's intentions were mixed, and it wasn't really philanthropic. It was a pragmatic thing that slavery ended. And when you put it that way, when you recognize that slavery ended not inevitably or because of our national conscience, but rather because of a pragmatic, almost accident of history, 
a wartime strategy and a pivotal moment where black people were needed as soldiers. It's like, what does that say about us as America? We have to process that. That part of the reason why white people think white supremacy isn't a big deal anymore is because it's like, well, slavery ended. So we had this moral conscience where we ended slavery and moved away from that. But just to recognize that all along the way throughout history, white people have never repented of and never turned away from white supremacy. Even the end of slavery did not happen because white people felt bad and repented and turned away from it. It happened through this kind of historical set of almost accidents. Well, and Lincoln said that he's quoted as saying that he would have allowed enslavement to continue if he could figure out a way for the union to, for the states to be united. And you look at how when the Civil War ended and other laws were put in place to further oppress and marginalize people, black people, it wasn't like they were just freed and then, okay, well, y'all have equal access to everything we have access to. No, there were systems put in place to further oppress in the North and the South. And then the other telltale sign of how there was so much, there was white supremacy in the North is how they, the Union won the war, but then allowed the South to romanticize about the Civil War and then allowed them to build just this whole system of romanticizing and having relics and songs and patriotic songs like, you know, like Dixie, you know, and building monuments because Confederate monuments aren't just in the South. Mm -hmm. Building monuments, naming schools, naming streets, naming, you know, naval bases, like military bases. You don't fight a war. I mean, can you imagine us fighting with a country And then after we defeat the country, like us participate, us helping to fight the Holocaust, but then allowing... Nazi monuments. Yeah, Nazi monuments to be erected in in the United States. When, When the Holocaust ended in Germany, they eradicated, you know, over time there was like a complete... And even if they found a Nazi sympathizer... 50 years later, 60 years later, 80 years later, like they, they would go out and find folks that were like 90 years old that were former Nazi, you know, soldiers and arrest them. Yep. There was zero, to- like it was zero tolerance for the foolery. America didn't, never did that. And people, you know, people say, well, why, why, why are black folks just now fighting the monuments? We know that's not true. We've been fighting and pre- pushing against the monuments for ever since they went up 50-something years after the war, the Civil War ended. It was like the North won the war, but they allowed this, they empathized with the South and said, okay, we'll let y'all, y'all can do, you know, y'all can do what y'all want to do. Y'all can name stuff after your heroes. You can, you know, you can you can carry the loser flag. You can, that's freedom of speech. That's like, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's nuts. Yeah, there was even bills that came up to reimburse slavers. Right. Those didn't pass. But I mean, they also didn't do anything to help black people start to build a life. Like the promises of giving any kind of land or any kind of start fell through. And the North also didn't reinforce just basic justice for the black people of the South. Basic fairness in the court system, basic opportunity to have 
fair labor contracts or to have fair employment. Right. So we're going to I'm going to read a section here of just to kind of make the point of what the I want to set the stage for what it was like in the south and in Texas leading up to the first Juneteenth and an important part of it is just kind of recognizing the way that racism had just complete control over the mindsets of the people in the south. So to illustrate that, uh, I've got a, a quote here from Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, a famous speech that he made called the Cornerstone Speech in 1861. He says, the new constitution, that is the constitution of the Confederacy, has put to rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, African slavery, as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This is the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. The prevailing ideas entertained by Thomas Jefferson and most of the leading statesmen at that time in the middle of the formation of the old constitution were that the enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature and that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. It was an evil they knew not well how to deal with. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. And then there was an eruption of applause. And then he continued, This is our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. The word Moral, the fact that he could put moral in at the end there, emphasizing that it is our moral position that black people are inferior and that it is their rightful position to be serving as slaves of us, this superior white race. The fact of the applause, that this was, these were applause lines in that day, that this was the vice president of the Confederacy openly declaring these things. This is not one man ranting. This is a clue of what everyone thought back in in those days. So then that's the context into which General Granger brought his General Order Number 3. General Granger was the general of the U.S. Army who arrived in Galveston from his post in Louisiana. Again, the Civil War had been over since April when Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Grant. Confederate soldiers in Texas had nevertheless continued to fight. They didn't all actually get the memo initially, or didn't travel as fast back then, that the war was over. And the soldiers in Texas actually, the Confederate soldiers actually won their last battle. So from the Texas perspective, a lot of white people in Texas were very reticent to submit to this new reality of the end of slavery, because from their conception, They had, most of them, been part of an independent republic in their own lifetimes. It was 16 years after they had been an independent republic. And they had won their last battle. And so they didn't really consider the loss of the Confederacy to be their own loss. And they were very bitter and slow to submit to this new reality of the end of slavery. And then into that came this general order number three, saying, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. 
This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and the rights of property between former slaves and masters. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly in their present homes and work for wages. So all of a sudden this word comes. And for the white people, it was just disgust and anguish. And for the black people, it was joy and freedom. And yet the black people in that first Juneteenth, when they first heard of their emancipation and freedom, it was just quiet celebration because there was widespread and legitimate fear of white retribution against black people. They, they had this word delivered of this freedom, but they're still in this entire, I mean, former nation, Texas, this entire state where the white people were nearly universally lined up in a desire to see black people fail. And yeah, still, they didn't. They didn't move there. Yeah, the black people. <laughs> there was no category of free black person before this. Right. It just Texas was disgusted even at the thought of having free black people. So even the black people who were freed prior to this were sent out of Texas, and so the black community just had to quietly celebrate those first Juneteenths, and they had to do it kind of. Low key, there was actually instances where dozens of formerly enslaved people were whipped because they were seen celebrating or seen having excitement about their freedom. Mm. There was so much sensitivity on the part of the white people. So all over the South, but especially in Texas, white people unleashed a torrent of violence against the freedmen and women, and sometimes against the fellow whites who supported them. There were some states where there were multiple lynchings every day of black people throughout Reconstruction as white people use terroristic violence to try to resubjugate the black people into something as closely resembling slavery as they could achieve. And again, there was no repentance. The white supremacists, who were almost everyone back then, did not repent. And to illustrate that, General Fisk received a letter from one planter, one plantation owner in DeSoto County, Mississippi, who said, quote, as to recognizing the rights of freedmen to their children, I will say there is not one man or woman in all the South who believes they are free, but we consider them as stolen property, stolen by the bayonets of the damnable U.S. government. Yours truly, T. Yancey. So that, that was the, the view, that white people saw them as stolen property and were embittered by that fact. And then also white people wanted, even needed black people to fail within society. Because slavery, all throughout its time in America, you know, the 70% of American history where we had slavery, slavery was defended by white people saying that black people were made for this and they will not be able to exist in free society. They are not going to be able to make it as free citizens. God designed black people, they would say, for slavery. And they would make all these like, apologetics of defending slavery that rested upon white supremacy and black inferiority. And so then when black people were free, white people were at a crossroads where they either needed to repent and say we were wrong all along, black people are equally human beings who are capable of everything we're capable of, or they needed black people to fail because otherwise it was going to expose the lie of everything that they had always believed, expose the lie of white supremacy. So after emancipation, 
white supremacists did everything in their power to inhibit the black community, even if it meant that the state itself would be weakened by unrest or by the loss of talented people who are willing to work. The white people designed society to prove that black people were not able to operate outside of slavery. And so, I mean, that's why you have things like the Tulsa Massacre. There's a thriving black community where black people are entrepreneurs, starting businesses, starting to thrive. And the white community came in and just massacred and killed hundreds of them, burned entire sections of the city down because there was a need. They could have repented, but shy of repenting of slavery and white supremacy, there was a need for the black community not to thrive. And so the North didn't really do much of anything to police the South in this constant terrorism against black people. The North did set up the Freedmen's Bureau, and they did a little bit with the very limited resources that they had. But the Freedmen's Bureau was basically the extension of the Northern government that was there to protect black people and get something started for black life in the South. But they were super poorly resourced. Edgar Gregory was appointed to lead the Bureau, and he was given an impossible job. Texas was such a large state, there was so much violence against black people that it was effectively impossible for him to move the needle. General Oliver Howard, who was over the whole Freedmen's Bureau, not just over Texas, he found Texas and said that Texas was the most difficult of all the former Confederate states. Because again, its white citizens were the most resistant to change because they had not been directly militarily defeated and they had been an independent republic in the lifetimes of the people who lived there. And so they were just super resistant and super violent towards the black community. I mean, even as you say that, I can, as someone who lives here, I mean, obviously there, things have changed quite a bit since when you're reading that, but even though physically some things have changed, that mentality is, I can totally see that here. Of that, They almost use that as a basis to defend their mentality as if their mentality is right. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you always hear, well, people from Texas, like these Californians that are moving here and trying to take our Mm -hmm. state and all these things about, yeah, it's almost, we use that as a, as a strength, but it's really a huge weakness. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy how someone can flip the script on something like that and try to use it as a strength. And Texas is just a interesting Interesting state as it is. I mean, even white people now, we are the mind, we, we're not the majority anymore in Texas. And I think it's been that way for at least probably a year or two. I'm not sure. I think the Latin community has grown, outgrown us. And so it's, it's interesting. It's such a, a crazy story to hear, especially that I can't imagine being someone in a society, enslaved in a society, then saying you're free okay, go ahead and go places. But it's like, I mean, if you think about that, what you were just saying, that people still oppress black people and the mentality is still there. So even though you're free, you're not going to go walk the streets openly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but you're not just automatically friends with those people. And it's like, man, there's, a, there's so much deep-rooted hatred that doesn't go away after a mm-hmm. proclamation. Yeah, it's like you're free, but you're not even free enough to celebrate your own freedom. That's crazy. Yeah, right. And again, we can, I don't even know how to, I feel like I say it all the time, I, I don't even know how to empathize with that. I can't even, I can't imagine that, like trying to, like hiding your celebration of your freedom. That's, I... Well, and many black people went back into enslavement mm-hmm. because what 
they were free to what? Like they were free to be homeless, free to, like they, you know, because of oppression still being okay and legal and lawful and lynchings and persecution, they had to feed their families. They had to live. And so many of them, I mean, enslavement continued. And I'm talking about actual enslavement continued for long after Mm-hmm. It was illegal, like no longer lawful. It still was, it was no longer legal, but it was still, you know, lawful because they just basically changed the name. I mean, it went into more like sharecropping and denture service. Like people still had, there was no support from the government to, there, there was nothing from the government to support freed people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sharecropping masters, former slave masters would just at the end of the year say, I'm not going to pay you. Right. All throughout Texas, all right. throughout America, right. all throughout the South. And then what were the black people going to do? There was a threat of violence, like you take this or there's a threat of violence, or what, you go to the court and get laughed out of the courtroom? There was no justice for black people in the courts of that exactly. day. There was no way that their word was going to be believed. No, I mean, the white people could just write whatever they wanted in their own ledgers and say like, no, I paid him. Or no, I didn't owe him anything. And it was just going to be believed. And fighting for justice, for your own justice, or speaking out could get you killed. Mm -hmm. And it would have taken so much money to actually set set things right. I'm not sure the country would have... I mean, definitely people weren't going to do it. But, like, I mean, if you think about someone who's in prison for and they weren't supposed to be there, and it was proved that they didn't do it, you know, the government will reimburse them money for the time they've been in prison. Mm-hmm. Like that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you think about if you're, if someone is enslaved and we're like, okay, you're free now, the number, the sheer financial numbers to be like, to take care of everyone, mm-hmm. it would, I don't even know if that would have even been yeah. actually possible. So it was like, it was almost like America, you know, we act like what you said, we accidentally made the decision in a way, mm-hmm. not have slavery anymore. But man, it's almost like, how do you repair that? Yeah, it seems like such a bigger deal, such a deeper issue than the surface, than like our history books wanted to be. Like there was slavery, and then and it was now, over, and then it's over. But like, man, that slavery is like this surfacey layer that's on top, but then it just has these thick roots that just go mm-hmm. all the way down to the very bottom. And, and there was no effort to repair. There was not even a measly attempt. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, yeah, and think of it that. Day one, as a freed black person, you gain your freedom. You're not allowed to celebrate it without threat of violence. And you have zero money and zero ownership, zero assets. Nowhere to live. Nowhere to live. Then you go back, and if you go back and sleep in the house that you're used to sleeping in, then your former slave master now has debt, like you owe him. Right. You're renting a house that you have not no money to pay for. And so immediately black people went not into freedom, but into debt for their former slave masters who had no good intentions for them and were bitter and considered them stolen property. All right, and so you paid with your body, mm-hmm. just like you did in enslavement. Mm-hmm. And they were you just, know. yeah, continued to for- be forced to work. And so for, I mean, a lot of white people conceive of it as if black people were free from that point. But just to illustrate where Texas was 75 years after emancipation, for 75 years, for more than that, there was brutal terrorism, 
brutal violence, lynchings that was executed against the black community in order to force them into subjection. And I just want to read one account. And I chose this particular account of something that happened in Texas because you'll see through the story itself that it illustrates how much widespread acceptance and complicity there was. At the end, there's literally a white audience that's cheering to celebrate what happened. So Bob White in 1940... Bob White was a black man who he was in a consensual but secret relationship. It was an adulterous relationship because the woman was married. But he was in a relationship with Ruby Cochran and they were together. Bob White openly talked about this to members of the black community. Ruby Cochran was a white woman who was married. Her husband then found out about the relationship. And just broader picture of what happened back then is if you were a white woman even with white supremacy being what it was, there's nothing in the human brain that's going to make you just automatically not be attracted to black men just because you see them as less than human. Like white women still were attracted to black men and still oftentimes would be in relationships with black men. But then what would happen is if that relationship was discovered because of white supremacy being what it was, you would be completely ostracized and potentially even violently treated or killed as a white woman if you were in a relationship with a black man. And so pretty much universally, whenever one of these relationships would be discovered, which they would be, universally white women would accuse the black man of rape. That's just what happened because it's either you do that and you'll be believed because nobody could conceive of you as a white woman actually wanting a relationship because they were so racist. So you would be believed or you just like throw away your life. And so universally what would happen is the white woman would accuse the black man of rape and then the black man would never be believed and he would be lynched. That's just what happened. So all throughout the South, this was a very common pattern that was practiced. And so in this instance, Bob was to be essentially lynched, but it was through the court system. Sometimes lynchings were extrajudicial, but sometimes they happened through the judicial process just being twisted. Um, and and when, you, when you say judicial process, you're saying the laws that we have in America would support this. Yeah, the and laws. And actually follow through with it. Yeah, so the laws, I mean, here's a man who's caught in this relationship, and then let me just walk you through what happened. I'll show you what I mean. Is that the rangers, the Texas rangers, took Bob into the woods and chained him to a tree every night for a week, and they beat him severely and demanded that he confess or else they would kill him. So then you're saying confess to confess to having raped Ruby Cochran. So they they beat him severely. Uh, He didn't have a lawyer. He couldn't read or write, but they made him sign or put his mark on a confession, on a signed confession that he couldn't even read. And then having that confession, they took him and set up a court, a kind of a show trial in front of an all white jury. And this is what I mean. It was essentially a lynching, but through the judicial system. It's like the trial is a foregone conclusion that he's going to be convicted. It's an all-white jury, and they sentenced him to death in the electric chair. So that's what happened locally, but then at that time, some of the federal government figures were, I mean, this is 1940, so some of the federal government figures were kind of cracking down on lynchings and, and the way that justice was miscarried throughout the South. So the case was appealed, and a new trial was ordered. So then White was again convicted, and then that was appealed to the Supreme Court in 1941. 
So the Supreme Court then overturned the conviction a second time, saying that White's constitutional rights had been violated, the way he was beat and threatened in the woods, which, yeah, that's a no-brainer. So then, Great job, Supreme it, Court. Yeah, so it went back to another <laughs> trial, a third trial. And so then in June 1941, W.S. Dude Cochran, the husband of Ruby Cochran, walked in front of the courtroom, pulled out a thirty-eight, and shot White in the back of the head mm. in front of the entire courtroom, in front of the judge and the prosecutors and everyone, and killed him instantly. And then he handed the gun to the prosecutor and turned himself in to be arrested. He was released on a $500 bond. His trial was just a few days later, and the trial lasted for three hours, and the jury returned a not guilty verdict after two minutes to open applause in the courtroom. In Texas. In Texas. 80 years ago. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, this is half the time that has expired since slavery ended is when this happened from then to now. So he was given a not guilty verdict to the the open applause in the courtroom, and then Cochran walked out a free man after having murdered Bob White in front of the judge, lawyers, dozens of spectators. Mm-hmm. Wow, I, that's like unbelievable. I can't even, I'm like shocked. I was not expecting the story to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what society, that's the fear that black people lived in in those days. I mean, this is, this is like in the lifetimes of people who are still alive today. And they lived in a world that was that racist to the point that you could just openly murder a black man and get away with it because an all-white jury was going to acquit you. And you can, and hopefully people are <laughs> thinking like, oh man, how is that different from today? So I mean, there's some ways it's, you it's, know, mm. it's hard to believe if that happened now that that same Thing would happen. So, like, if somebody just came in and shot a guy in mm-hmm. court mm-hmm. and didn't immediately <laughs> die, like that. So that part maybe, maybe we can different agree that it might be degrees. different. Yeah, maybe. but like the, the shadows of that, the echoes of all white jury openly murdering black people and then just kind of on bond, or mm-hmm. or murdering a black or brown person and then you're a few years in prison and then you're or then you're good murdering someone. And because you wear a certain uniform, you don't go to jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, qualified immunity. And yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's I like, mean, hopefully people can, I mean, that seems, I think I can probably agree with everyone who's listening right now. It's probably like, that is absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, even today, the Supreme Court issued a ruling, the Batson rule that basically said that lawyers are not allowed to strike black jurors from juries. But even today... That happens all the time. That black jurors are way more likely to be struck from juries, and there are prosecutors. Where you can look on YouTube and find videos of prosecutors training and teaching other prosecutors on how to slickly get away with dismissing black jurors, how to come up with other excuses for why you're getting rid of them, because white people know that an all-white jury is more likely to convict a black defendant. It's actually 16% more likely to convict a black defendant if it's an all-white jury, even today. And well, so, and I think what's crazy is that... Jury selection is strategy. But yeah, go ahead, yeah, I'm sorry. it is, and it mm-hmm. is, and it's super disheartening. And mm-hmm. it's like... That's a whole job. That's a whole, yeah. But what's crazy is when people are saying, I think what keeps popping up is, man, you're talking about race. We make these things a race problem. And it's like, I hope when people can hear this, 
even like disparities and stuff of, hey, let's not talk about race. And it just seems to dismiss things that are, we think of a lot of times racism is, in, is enslaving black people. It seems like maybe we're getting close to the hump of like, hey, that's not, mm-hmm. that's not what racism is. Mm-hmm. That can be what racism is for sure. But racism is exactly what you just kind of described. It's, get, it's so deep. Okay, we got rid of the surface, but the roots are going down to our jury system, which is affecting whether or not people get killed in prison or not, whether they spend the rest of their lives in prison. It seems so obvious that this is a problem. Mm-hmm. And here is why it's a problem. Here's how maybe we could solve the problem, but it's just, I don't know. And I know a lot of the listeners of our podcast are probably on the same page as us, but it can be a frustration that like, oh, that's so obvious that Mm -hmm. this is a problem, that we have systemic issues. And it just reminds me of like anybody that says, you know, we don't have systemic racism in this country. At least with me personally, I can't be like, I don't enter in with that person anymore. I'm done. I don't have the energy or the desire to want to teach someone that just inherently doesn't believe that there's systemic racism in our country. So I just, uh, I'm good. We're just probably not going to talk about this. And But it's these little things, I mean, these huge things that you're just talking about in the in the context of Juneteenth that seems so obvious mm-hmm. that but there are problems. Black people have to work around it all the time because we, ha- we have to exist in, in spaces that are not safe for us because we got to work and we got to feed kids and we got to eat, we got to live, we got to go to school, we got to do all the things. So we're having to, you know, oftentimes we're not able to walk away from microaggression and the crazy things that people believe and how people want to prop us up, tokenize us. It's a beat down. And then we have to pick and choose which fight we're going to enter into. Yeah, I mean, if you're a black person and your boss does something that's racist. That's exactly what I was thinking about, your boss. Like, what are you going to do? You don't really think, you know, they will see your black body and think, well, this is a black person that's among us, so I'm just going to ask them. And what do you expect that black person to say if you're paying their paycheck? Mm -hmm. What do you think that they're going to do if they, you know, it's it's nuts. Yeah, and I want to just say a note here on, with the story I just told, this story of this lynching in 1940 with Bob White. Just a note about how history is recorded and the way that history is passed down through this white lens. Black people in that day, for the most part, did not have access to the archives or the general primary sources of history. Like Black people didn't issue court rulings. They didn't have the ability to make laws. They were because of all kinds of oppression with voting, which we've done another another episode on in the past. Like they didn't have access to the ballot box, and they weren't in, represented in state legislatures. and And so the the normal way that history is recorded, the normal primary sources that we use, tell a slanted, one sided story. It's almost like today in our context. Think of how differently the last four years or the four years of Trump's presidency. Think of how differently those were reported in Newsmax versus like Washington Post. And imagine a history where Newsmax got to write the entire history of that era. And that's what happened in this era. Black people 
did not have the ability to record history in a way that would be believed. Like they recorded it. It's all over the place. There's tons of primary sources, but just not in the places that you're going to find it if you don't look and listen. And white people for a long time did not look and listen. And we just had our story of how things had happened. Well, I almost think it's not even that they didn't look and listen. It's that they they saw it deliberately turned turned away. Yeah, they deliberately right. turn their back to it because yeah. a lot of which is worse the documentation is there in in plain sight like you don't even have to dig that hard in in our in the archives to see the display of white supremacy because people they boasted, they about, boasted it. about it they wrote about it in the papers they had clan meetings at the churches they openly like when i think about the city that we live in the county that we live in Denton county they openly documented, wrote letters, like the stuff that just didn't age well because they thought that they were always, they would always have the upper hand. And to see this revisionist history that is so intentional to shoot down 1619, the 1619 Project, to pass laws that racism can't be discussed in a school, mm-hmm. in a history class, it's it's bananas. So in our show notes, I'm going to have, we're going to post one, maybe maybe I'll find a couple more, but I found one already. Just a modern account of this same story that I just told from a white perspective. Where if you want to just read that in order to just like notice how differently it's told and realize that that's happening to all of your history. In this other account that I found, it just there's almost no emphasis on race. It's just passively mentioned that, the, that he happened to be a black man. But it's all about, it's just said that he raped the woman and then that the Supreme Court struck it down. There's all these trials. And then this husband defended his wife's honor because she'd been raped. And so then he killed the man. And then it gives this quote, this emotional quote from some journalist back then about how something about this man having the right to defend the honor of his wife and who wouldn't. And that's the telling that's told. Even though... From the story that I just told, you now know and see how distorted of a picture that gives. And that's what happens to all of our history. It just emphasizes the importance of listening to the victims and the oppressed because they're not going to have the power in any society, not just in America, but just all throughout the world. The oppressed people are precisely the ones who don't have the microphone to tell you if you don't listen to them and believe them. Well, what's so interesting is that people try to have so many degrees of separation and time from enslavement and oppression. And so Viola Fletcher, she's 107 years old, and she just testified on Capitol Hill with her two younger brothers about the Tulsa race massacre and her experience her vivid memories, her trauma, the fact, advocating for reparations. So it's crazy that they're, like you said, my parents, you know, people's grandparents, there are people who are still alive that either witnessed or saw their relatives endure or that that saw oppression like black people saw it firsthand and experienced it firsthand. But you know who's, who's also alive? The people who did... Mm. Who the domestic terrorists, the white supremacists. It's so funny that we want to suppress all of this because we don't want to see Paul Paul as the racist that he was because he was lynching black people 
it's real. Mm-hmm. If, if Viola Fletcher is alive, then there are probably people who participated in the Tulsa massacre that are alive. Yeah. But they get to hide. Why are they not in prison? Emmett Till's accuser, she's still alive. That 14-year-old boy was slaughtered. She never went to jail, and she admitted that she lied mm-hmm. after many years. It's, there are many white supremacists who get to just mm-hmm. recreate themselves, and they're probably some of the same people who advocate for the revisionist history, who are voting and pushing for voter suppression. You know, they're participating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, and this ties into a couple of things that we've said. It's almost like imagine that you have like a game night and you're playing Monopoly. And for the first half of the game, all the white people are just stealing the property from the black people and taking all their money and all their, and, and everything. And then partway through the game, the white people gradually start to play by f- rules that are more fair a little bit. And they kind of stop stealing some of the properties and money. But they keep the ones that they already have. They keep all the stolen properties. And so then black people in America now are playing with basically nothing. And then white people are like, well, now we play by fair rules. Now I don't, I don't treat black people unfairly. I happen to hold Boardwalk and Park Place that I've had those and they've been running in my family. But I charge whenever black people land on Boardwalk and Park Place, I charge them the same amount that I would charge a white person who lands there. And so it's this, this legacy of unfairness that is just has grown even over time. Like this growing and the vast inequality that's a legacy of racism. And the generational uh, disparities. Yeah, and white people can feel like they're being fair if they define racism as I treat black people and white people the same without actually, there's never been a repentance of the history of the legacy of the unfairness of the past. And Brad, to your point about the roots, America never uprooted the tree of racism or white supremacy. Like we didn't even cut the tree down. We just gradually reduced the portion sizes of its fruit that we would eat. And we judge people of the past because we can see that their racism was a little bit like too strong for today. It's not acceptable by today's standards, but we continue down the same path and eating the same fruit just with lighter portion sizes. And there's never been a moment that you can point to in American history where we have actually repented of white supremacy or enslavement. So speaking of all of that, people are going to ask, like, what can I, what can I do? <laughs> so let's talk about what they can do. Yeah. What does it look like then with all this as history to celebrate Juneteenth? It's been a holiday that all along has looked back upon this promise that was never fully realized even in that day. Mm -hmm. Like emancipation didn't fully happen then. And it's a promise that even to today is not fully realized. Millions of black people, I just read an article this morning about a black man in prison for life without parole for marijuana possession. Mm Mm-hmm. And that that was, it came up and there was a chance for that to be overturned. I think this was the state of Mississippi and they didn't overturn it. They just kept him in prison for life for marijuana possession. So this is something that has happened and is still happening today. And so it's just a very mixed emotion thing to celebrate Juneteenth because it's a promise that's not really fulfilled. 
And yet, it's also it's something that needs to be elevated in society. Both like the learning of true history, and it is right to celebrate equality. It's right to celebrate black people in a sense on paper being made equal, even though it wasn't fulfilled. And so I think there's this tension, but it's it's also like a good thing to celebrate even at the same time that the, the reality has not been fulfilled. Well, there's a tension in the black community because many black people, and I'm torn, because there are m- many black people don't celebrate Juneteenth and are like, I wish I would celebrate, you know, not being told that I was free until however long later. I wish I would celebrate that mess. Like, why, why do we celebrate our oppression? Why do we celebrate these delayed, deferred American white supremacist benchmarks? Why do we uplift them and elevate them? But then on the other side, it's a story of our perseverance, our tenacity, how we have stood on each other's shoulders, black people, how we, it's, it's a celebration of us. I mean, I'm torn. I have, I have many black friends and I know many black people that speak against celebrating something like Juneteenth, but then I have many friends, many black people that absolutely celebrate it and I'm somewhere stuck in the middle. I've always participated in the Juneteenth activities here in Denton. It's one of the oldest documented Juneteenth celebrations. I think they started celebrating in, I can't remember what year, but it's, it's, it has a long, ongoing, like, documented history in Denton. And mm-hmm. so... And I, I can even... It's hard for me to empathize with a lot of the situations that we talk about on this podcast, but I can understand why that's attention for black people. Yeah. I can understand why celebrate it. It seems like such a cheap, fake 4th of July. Yeah. Right? I think it, it's like 4th of July, we kind of, is freedom and stuff, but it's not actual, <laughs> what we're, July 4th, that is not the bedrock of the, of the holiday. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to talk freedom for all people, I mean, Juneteenth is certainly more of a holiday for that than July 4th will ever be. But I can understand that, like, we don't want to celebrate it because it seems so, like, why? Why are we celebrating this silly, easy thing that we should be, but then the tension of the good of it? Yeah, I mean, let's just zoom in on that for just a second. Fourth of July is a holiday where we celebrate people being freed from a 3% tax from Great Britain. It was a 2% direct tax and a 1% uh, I'll take a 3% indirect tax, tax through something called the Navigation Act. <laughs> so it was a 3% tax versus Juneteenth we celebrate black people being freed from not just slavery where they didn't get wages of their work, but actual complete dehumanization. And then on 4th of July, it was 2 million people were set free on 4th of July. The population of America at that time was 2.5 million, but half a million black people remained in slavery like their status was unchanged by the Revolutionary War. So 2 million people gained their freedom on 4th of July versus 4 million people gained their freedom on Juneteenth through like emancipation. But then all the ones who died enslaved before that, like the millions upon millions of people who were, who were the carnage, mm-hmm. whose bodies were the carnage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. But yeah, just to show like the way that we do such fanfare, though, for the 4th of July. Oh, yeah. And it's, like, such a big deal. Yay, no 3% tax. Like, we get to drive on the right side of the road now. And 
get a talk with American accents. Like, what did we really gain? <laughs> Great Britain is like basically really similar to America. I mean, it's like right. versus what happened in emancipation, America, our deepest, darkest garbage was overturned. Like white people also ought to be more happened for us as white people on emancipation than on 4th of July because freedom from sin is way better than 3% from a 3% tax, freedom from a 3% tax. Like I would much rather live in America where there is no slavery than in an America where I have to pay another 3% tax. Like what Juneteenth should be in, in that sense a much bigger deal to everyone than the 4th of July is. But I think Juneteenth, it's kind of like inherently brings up the past of America's racist history in a way that white people don't like to do. They don't want to go there. And it elevates black people in a way that that white culture... But that people from Britain, they fought for their freedom to come to this land and rob, steal, pillage, rape, and further oppress. Like, how crazy is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think we'll probably talk about this, but like, we're not advocating, hey, don't celebrate July 4th. But I think with, like with most holidays, and more, I mean, there's some holidays we certainly would be like, yeah, I don't, know, I'm not going to celebrate. I don't celebrate July 4th. But I, 4th. I think in when like my family and I were going to go, I buy some fireworks and shoot some stuff off. But I think it's a time to actually talk about, let's talk about what actually happened. Like, mm-hmm. what are we really doing here? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, let, let's get with your friends and cook out and... Do all the stuff, but let's be real about what actually happened and what actually is July Fourth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and not and not from the revisionist history, mm-hmm. right. July Fourth. So I, I again, I think it's one of those things where there's certainly some holidays, Christopher Columbus Day. There's some things that are just like outright, let's not do it. Right. And I don't think July Fourth is that, but I do think, and if you choose to not celebrate it, hey, I I get it. But I think let's just be real about what's actually happening and. Mm-hmm. the origins of this and and not to paint this picture of you know even that our forefathers are like the worst crumb on the earth and blah 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 but they certainly weren't the super awesome great people that we think they were and you know we can paint the same pictures for us i mean we think we're more awesome than we are mm-hmm. and so let's just be real and actually talk about facts and what actually happened these things because there's not a way to there's not a good way. There's not a right. better way of painting honest truth and a bad way of well, painting that. Some of the forefathers had over 600 slaves and were raping black women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 40 of the declaration. They, they made romanticize. They romanticized like rape and having like I you know I can easily say that Fourth mm. of July. I, don't, I we don't celebrate it. It's like black people are off work and we cook out day. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's what it is to me. Uh, and, and for white people, reflect on that for a second. So I have a Frederick Douglass quote here. Who This is kind of a famous quote that maybe can help white people realize why that would be the case. He said, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? Right. I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license. Your sound of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your show of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. 
your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him more bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Fourth of July, to the black person, to the black slave of that day, was a day when America celebrated the very freedom that they simultaneously denied to black people. Mm-hmm. And Frederick Douglass called it out and told them they were whitewashed tombs, mm-hmm. literally. But then, but then I also, to Brad's point, 4th of July is a day when we shed a 3% tax from Great Britain. And I don't want to say there's no value to that because over the course of 200 some years of our nation's history, that tax would have added up. We would not be anywhere near the nation we are today if not for that independence. That prosperity that came through that it still has meaning. It's still, I, I don't want to say like there's nothing to celebrate or that there's like, the, and that the, the day is not racist in itself. It's just that black people weren't included in it initially. But both Juneteenth and 4th of July, what I'm saying is that both days, we should approach with a little bit more somber reflection than we do. EJI, Equal Justice Initiative, has a quote. Man, we'll put EJI stuff in the show notes, but... If you guys don't know EJI at this point, the Equal Justice Initiative, you need to go to their website, support them. Absolutely. I mean, they're just doing Mm -hmm. really great work. So EJI says, Juneteenth should be a national day of reflection that invites us all to confront the unfulfilled promises and justice denied to black people in this nation. This reflection can better prepare us to deal with the legacies of racial injustice that we live with today. By strengthening our understanding of racial history, we can create a healthier discourse about race in America that can lead to an era of truth and justice. Use it as a day of reflection. So we want to talk about what white people can do. Let's do it. Yeah, what, what, what do we do? What can I do? Yeah. So then how can white people celebrate Juneteenth? I think, I mean, a couple ideas would be read the true history and reflect on the true history of America. And that's that's true of both Juneteenth and 4th of July. Learn what actually happened in our country. Use it as a day to get on EJI's website and read and reflect. Also, you could buy a book from a black author. Something I, I kind of found out through researching for this episode is you can actually search on Google black-owned restaurant and take your family just out to eat and talk and have a conversation about America's history at a black-owned restaurant while being a patron and supporting a black-owned business. And Google actually, can you can search by businesses that are black-owned just by putting those words. But really, I think white people have in society, we just generally have the microphone most of the time and the ability to decide what traditions to form around different holidays, you know, Santa and the Easter bunny and all the things like we kind of come up with everything. So Juneteenth, I think really is just like a holiday that is still forming over time and coming into its own. It's still being adopted. It's 47 states have made it a state holiday and there's a, a big push to make it a national holiday that I think will happen. And so it's going to continue to be shaped and formed, but as a white person, it's a good time for us to just step back and let black people decide like what they would like the holiday to look like and to have them have the microphone. So just Katina, I want to set you up with that and just turn it to you. Like how would you want white people to celebrate it? What would it look like? How would you feel loved on that day by how white people can 
celebrate it. So the holiday itself and then the ongoing work and the spirit of the holiday are two things that I want to address. So white people, when you when there's a celebration or there are events that are going on in your city, again, Denton has been celebrating Juneteenth since 1891. I would say lose the one and done mentality and commit to ongoing work. Go to Juneteenth festivities, but also look to do things outside of Juneteenth, Martin Luther King Day. And that's not just the white people, but white organizations, white churches, because white multi, so-called multi-ethnic churches have a long-standing history of doing this one and done thing for performance. Support Juneteenth activities in your city or near you, specifically black, led, and run. Denton's Juneteenth now is more city-funded, but then this year, Project 19 is an organization of black activists in Denton who grew up in Quakertown, grew up in Southeast Denton, whose families descend from Quakertown, and they're doing events this year alone, like as a separate group, and they're providing scholarships for Fred Moore students in Fred Moore High School. You can read it. You can listen to our Quaker Town episode. But support Juneteenth activities in your city or near you, specifically Black-led and run. Attend with a heart of humility as an ally and not a spectator or consumer. So I'll use white churches in our area. Folks show up to support their so-called racial reconciliation efforts and not to do the work to serve, you know, the marginalized community. Black people, we are by default inclusive and we invite white and other cultures to speak or sing in Juneteenth activities or Martin Luther King Day or whatever day. And it's funny how that works. The most excluded people group is the most inclusive, you know, Go to the activity and stay a while. If it's outdoors, and this is stuff that I've just witnessed because I've been a part of Denton Juneteenth for decades. If it's outdoors, don't come for 30 minutes to say you did and leave because it's too hot. How you think slavery was? Like slavery was too hot and nobody had a choice. So if you're going to come, bring your water cooler, bring your drinks, bring your stuff and be with the people and don't sit on the outskirts because your white pastor is speaking for five minutes or the choir has been invited by the black people who are descendants of the oppressed and who are, who are marginalized. We invite you, we give you the stage to speak and you do your thing and then everybody, all of a sudden you see this big white exodus from the event. All right, we did it. Oh, y'all were so great. Y'all sang so, ooh, it was such a beautiful visual picture, picture, picture. Oh, we're going to post this in the church bulletin. Look at us. Come to stay. Learn about black history and the varying black perspectives on Juneteenth. Learn about them and the ones that you are not, that you don't normally gravitate to. Learn about it from black voices. Learn about the history of the oppression in your city. Denton has a horrible history of racism that continues mm -hmm. because you don't have to go far to learn about black history. Start in your city, you know, and advocate for reparative work in your city. So in Denton, again, Quakertown, just like Tulsa and many other cities where black people were displaced and their businesses were replaced, that's probably happened in every major city in the country, but in several small towns all throughout the, you know, the country. 
So leveraging your privilege to advocate for reparative work, look around the town. Identify the Black-owned businesses, like Garen was saying. Denton Square is the hot spot here. It's the tourist attraction. They make a lot of money for that overpriced coffee and overpriced food. They make tons of money. Like, what we don't need in Denton is another coffee shop or pizza joint. But what we do need in Denton is for reparations that black businesses that were once on the square and run out, that they be restored. Advocate for black-owned businesses. Don't just go to the catfish place. Help the catfish place get, on, get in, the hot, in the hot spot. You know, Clara's Kitchen is a, a black-owned restaurant that is operating out, out of this little small place. Put some coins into getting them on the square. Engage in black commerce. Don't just take yourself to the black-owned place. Get your friends together and put some money into and push and write your, you know, write your local officials and help leverage your privilege to get these businesses on the map. Yeah, restored. Yeah, restored. Mm-hmm. Right now, the Denton Square has still, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any black businesses on the square. You know, write your city council about leveraging resources for black commerce. Support black churches and pastors because this history of racism and oppression in this country, black churches, black faith-based organizations for centuries, even when they were just meeting out in the woods in the middle of the night away from the white gays when they were supposed to be in their shack. Even when they, I mean, that's where the roots of some of this stuff is. Some of these churches were like outdoors, you know, that type of thing. And then uh, many of these churches formed so that black people could mobilize to just do the best they could to protect themselves from, you know, the oppressive community that they live in. So support these black churches that have been around. Many of them, you know, have been around for over 100 years. Get to know who these black pastors are. Don't just show up on, on, again, Juneteenth or MLK Day to show your face for a photo op. See if they need a new air conditioning system. Notice the building that they're in and put some coins behind restoring their buildings or helping them to get new buildings. You know, support black-led advocacy. That's important because there's so many white people. I was talking to a family this weekend that... And, and reading these articles about how black death and oppression has been monetized by white people, you know, who may give a, a little bit percentage of their book or whatever, but they're still, their fame, everybody wants to hear a white person talk about black history and a white person, they want to read a white person's book, you know, Robin DiAngelo, but you don't want to read Austin Channing's book. And her book is amazing, and it's from a black woman's perspective and experience. So identify those creatives and businesses and consultants and the Black Chamber of Commerce, Denton has one, and the black-led events, specifically the black-led, the black-mobilized events. And then go in with with the spirit of humility to not just spectate, but to, to humbly, you know, participate and do the reparative work. So that's what, you know, I, that's what I think needs to be done. Don't stop the one and done mentality. What would you both say to the white person that, either a listener of the show, they want to do the work, they want to listen, they want to learn, and they want to go to these activities, but they just feel, feels uncomfortable. They're, I'm, I'm 
you know, there's only a few white people there. Maybe I'm the only white person there. What? Welcome what to our you- world. I, I hate when white people say, I want to come, Katina, but I don't want to be the white only white person there. What are we going to do? What are we going to do to you? Again, black people are the most inclusive people group in the world, period. Point blank. We always go, I don't know why we do this, because personally, I, I like... We always go and seek out. Like, I have white people that support the things that I do, but it's a natural, organic thing. I'm not seeking white people just to seek white people. But by and large, we always seek to include others in our, the things that we do. So get over yourself. If you're, if you're afraid to step into a space where you're the only white person, then that should incentivize you to, to think, like, if I feel this way, how have black people felt this whole time? Mm-hmm. Stop centering yourself. Yeah. Stop centering yourself. Like you're not, you're not, you know, the moral of the story. You're not <laughs> the mm-hmm. sun in the moon on which all of this should hang. Like step into the experience of black people. Know that we're the only black people most often. And there are not safe spaces for us oftentimes to gather and mobilize. And you see this history of oppression, lynching, all these things that happen when white people would gather and how black people would be slaughtered or when white women cried, how black people would die. And so you going somewhere and being the only white person proves that folks saying I, I, I don't see color is a lie. Because when you're in a space with all black people, you are very aware of your difference. And fear is most often the the default emotion. Welcome to our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that part of your brain that is uncomfortable in that moment is telling you something that's not true. I mean, it's like a false reality that you in that moment need to be nervous or self-conscious. Black people are people. And you they're just people like other people they and yes there are the realities of oppression and there's ways in which we should advocate for black people to undo oppression but in that situation where you're going and you're in a room with black people it's like your brain is has been fed over the course of your life a false truth about who black people are from media from just the culture that we consume, there's this idea of, we've talked about this in past episodes, that media over-represents black criminality or black poverty in a way that's completely unfair and a lie. And so in that situation, just train your brain to think rightly about black people. And the way you do that is by going and just start a conversation. And And step into the discomfort. Walk through the discomfort. Mm -hmm. Like Garen was saying earlier, yield the microphone. Yield the microphone, because what we don't need is another white savior. What we do need is to amplify and uplift black people that are already doing the work. Black people should be leading in every regard. You know, they should be leading this revolution. They should be leading this work. Get behind a a black person instead of propping up a a black person for your event to pat yourself on the back uplift a black person because black people need to be uplifted and they have everything to offer and they have more to offer this conversation by sheer experience. Mm -hmm. Even though I have never been enslaved, my great-great-great-grandfather was and my great-great-grandmother who helped raise me told me the tales 
And it's our perspective and our experience that matters the most in this conversation. So get behind mm-hmm. us. I mean, even you talking about the inclusivity of the black community, part of that is because when you have been a victim of being excluded, then you know how that feels. And so the black community has this empathy and this intentional desire then to be inclusive that white people, oftentimes we just spent our whole life just being in the in-group. And so we don't even think about what it would feel like to be excluded until you're there as the only white person and you're not comfortable. And that's a new reality that you just suddenly discover that that's a dynamic. And, And that goes back to the black community just needs to lead this conversation because the black community has experienced the oppression and experienced the exclusion in a way that equips the black community to be to have better insight into how we build inclusivity yep. into our society. And I think your unwillingness to talk with people at events, to start conversations with black and brown people at a Juneteenth local event, I think your unwillingness reveals what you actually believe. Why are you really there? your unwillingness will prove why you're there. Or if you're just going to support the white person that's going to be on stage and take a picture, that proves what, why you're really there too. Yeah, so it's like your unwillingness will prove you the wrong reasons why you're there, and your willingness should prove why you would be there, and it would be that you want to love other people. Yep. And that should be an easy, easy answer to the question of, you know, are you willing or not? Mm-hmm. And I mean, love is to love other people. It's a journey. It's an adventure. It doesn't always, it's not just like a one and done. It's not something you necessarily need to understand every step that love demands of you. You just start walking. You just start going. You start pursuing love and you walk down that road. And as you go, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to apologize and be ready to humble yourself and learn. But go down that road because there's nowhere better to be. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 